Good morning. I enjoyed that music very much. My name is Zach. My wife, Julie, my two sons, Eli and Jasper, have been living here in Beijing for the past two years. This is the start of our third year. And even though I'm an American, before we moved to China, we actually lived in the Eastern European country of Hungary for 12 years. But Hungary is a very special place to me because when I was younger, I also lived in Hungary. My parents lived there until I was 16. And so until I was 16, I didn't really have much perspective on what it was like to be a high school student in America. But at the age of 16, we moved back to America. I was in a pretty typical small-town America high school, and I was trying to discover ways to fit in, and I realized fairly soon that there were certain traditions that students in this high school had, and one of the traditions was it seemed like pretty much every student in this school, at some point during the year, would do some kind of sporting event. So I thought, maybe I should do that too. So I looked at all the options, football, basketball, baseball, and I decided I was going to try out for the track team because I've always enjoyed running and jumping and stuff like that. And it turns out that the way it worked at our high school was you had to show up at a particular day, particular time, and then you could try out all the different events in track, all the running events, all the jumping events, and ideally by the time the day was done, you would know what event you were the best at, and that's the one that you would compete in. So I showed up, I did all these events, and by the time the day was done, I had realized something very interesting about myself. I realized that I'm not good at anything. Or more specifically, I don't have the personality that it takes to do some of these track and field events. For example, I decided to try the sprinting event. I was there on the starting line with all the other guys. We're waiting for the man to come with the gun to start the race. And as I'm kneeling there, all of a sudden I hear this strange sound. I look and I see all the other guys on the starting line are snarling like they're, like they're dogs, like, <laughs> like they just can't wait to eat up the track. And I'm thinking to themselves, is this some kind of strange American rule? Should, should I be snarling too? The next moment, the gun goes off. They start running, and I think to myself, those guys are fast. <laughs> and then the next thought I had was, Zach, why aren't, why aren't you running? And so it was just clear that, no, I, I don't have that kind of a mad dog personality. So I decided to try the opposite of sprinting. I decided to try the long-distance running. But I quickly found out the long-distance runners, they also have a particular personality, but theirs is different from the sprinters. They kind of act like they are above everyone else. They are aloof somehow. Like maybe they know something that the rest of us don't know. Like maybe they know that sometime in the future there's going to be a meteor that's going to fly out of the sky. It's going to strike the earth, and it's going to knock the earth closer to the sun so that anyone living on the sunny side of the earth will be fried to a crisp. Only people on the shaded side of the earth will be able to survive. But because the earth is constantly rotating, only the long-distance runner will be able to continually run to keep up with the rotation of the earth. And I don't have that kind of a survival personality. So I tried everything. I wasn't good at anything, but I was good enough to at least join the team. And really, that was really all that I cared about because I, I really just wanted to be with my friends. So one particular Saturday, the coach comes up to me, and he has a fairly serious look on his face. And he said, Zach, we're having trouble with the men's 400-meter group hurdles. Now, the hurdles, I'm sure you know, is where they put these gates up, and you have to run and jump over them. The group hurdle simply means that one guy holding a baton runs the first 100 meters. He passes it to the second guy who runs the second 100 meters. The race is done when the fourth guy crosses the finish line. So I asked the coach, 
what's the problem? And he said, well, the lead guy, the guy who's supposed to start, he's sick today. He can't do it. And I was hoping that maybe you would do it for him. Now, I have never run the hurdles before in my life. And the, the coach knows this. And so I'm, I'm saying to him, surely there's someone who can do a better job at this than me, like someone who's done this ever. And he said, he got to the point, he said, well, yes, there, there are people who could do it better than you, but they're already doing something else. So basically what he's saying is, believe me, Zach, I don't want you to do it either, because I know you're not going to be good at it, but, but I have no other choice. And so I said, well, okay, I, I can give it a try. So I go, the, the coach says, go over to this practice track, and the other three guys are going to teach you in 10 minutes how to run the hurdles. Well, I knew nothing good was going to come of this, but I went over there, and they began to teach me the essence of the hurdles. And it was interesting. What they were actually teaching me was the essence of what a race is. And when you think about it, it's deceptively simple, but to me, very interesting. The idea of a race is you want to get from the starting line to the finish line in as little time as possible. You want as few seconds to go by between the time that you start running until the time that you finish, and everything comes down to focusing on the clock. Now, what they explained to me was when you're doing the hurdles, you don't just want to run as fast as you can. Instead, you want to take a series of long, graceful strides. Because if you're striding correctly, when you get down to the first hurdle, you don't just jump over it any way that you want to. That would actually slow you down. Instead, you just lift your leg and you kind of step over the hurdle. And then you get to the next hurdle and you step over that one. And this way, if you're doing it right, it's just a nice graceful quality to hurdling. So I said, all right, I'll try it. So I got down there and they said, on your marks, get set, go. And I'm thinking, you know, long, graceful strides. So I, I start running and I look down and I see, sure enough, I'm taking long, graceful strides. And I thought, this isn't too hard. This is pretty easy. Maybe I'm going to become pretty good at this. Maybe I will become one of the best hurdlers on our team. And in the next moment, I ran into the first hurdle. I was so concentrating down here, I didn't know what was going on up here. And for the next 10 minutes, I just kept making mistakes. And these guys are getting more and more frustrated because it's almost time for the race to begin. And finally, they said, okay, Zach, we have a new plan for you. This time, when the gun goes off and the race really begins, just run any way that you want to. And when you get down to the first hurdle, just jump over any way that you can. And I said, I can do that. Well, at this point, news must have begun to spread through the team that Zach was going to be making a fool of himself because when it was time for the race to start, the audience was filled with people and they all had that special look on their face like, you know, we can't wait, it's going to be so bad, so bad. And I'm thinking, yes, you, you have no idea what's in store for you. So I, I'm there with all the other guys, we're waiting for the man to come with the gun, we're getting down, I'm trying to remember all this stuff. All of a sudden, the gun goes off and I burst out of the gate like a ball of furious, fiery energy. My, my legs are going one way, my arms are going the other. I'm almost hitting the guy next to me on the head with the baton, and I can hear people in the audience laughing at me. We get down to the first hurdle, and forgetting everything that I have heard, I just launch myself up into the air. And you have to picture what this looks like, because all the other guys are running nice and smooth down the track, and then there's me basically going like this. Now, the whole thing is so distracting that pretty soon I realized the other runners are actually becoming distracted. They start to slow down to see what is going on here. Now, this, this was their mistake because suddenly I realized I was actually ahead of everyone else. I crossed the, the finish of the first 100 meters first. 
Now, there's probably some fancy way that you're supposed to, you know, hand off the baton to the next guy, but they never taught me that, so I just threw it at him. <laughs> Thankfully, he, he's a ninja warrior. He grabs it out of the air. He gets off to a great start. He gives it to the third guy, gives it to the fourth guy. Before we realized what had happened, we had won the race. I don't, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. That is how, however, that I got my one and only gold medal in high school track. Now, I share this story with you because I thought and thought and began to think again about how fascinating it was what I learned that particular day about a race. And if the time is important in a high school running event, it only becomes increasingly more important when you get into the higher events. When you get to the Olympics, it is the only thing that people can talk about. In fact, when you get to those final sprinting events, everyone is so fast that the the measure of time in, in between all their individual finishing times, many times it's less than one second. It comes down to measuring the tenth a hundredth of a second. And in the audience, we, we like that. There's something about that that appeals to us. And that doesn't surprise me, honestly, because we live in a world where we are absolutely focused on time. Anyone who can wears a watch or brings a phone with them so that you will know what time is it during the day? What time do I have to get up? How long will it take me to get to that bus? If we make it on time, we're satisfied. If we don't, we're frustrated. Anyone who's ever been a student knows everything about the student's life revolves around time. How long is this class period? How long is my break? How long do I have to finish my exam? If you turn on the television or turn on your computer, you're going to be reminded of what time it is. This is something that has fascinated scientists. Scientists from as far back as Einstein, they were talking about time. How does time work on a molecular level? Is it actually someday possible to alter the flow of time? to cause time to flow backwards. And while they believe that will never actually happen, it has fascinated science fiction writers, including one writer, Ray Bradbury, who wrote a short story called A Sound of Thunder. In this short story, we meet a future corporation called Time Safari. They have a time machine. They allow very wealthy businessmen to pay a large sum of money, go back in time, and have their picture taken after they have shot and killed a dinosaur. The way that the Time Safari guys do this is they have already gone back in advance and they find an animal that will already die of natural causes. They mark that one and those are the only animals that are allowed to be shot. They do not permit people to go back and just arbitrarily kill any animal because if that animal was not supposed to die at that moment, you would have no way of knowing how the death of that creature might affect the future when you're dealing with millions and millions of years. So The Time Safari guys have this corporation. A very arrogant, wealthy businessman comes down. He puts down a huge sum of money. He wants to go back in time and kill a Tyrannosaurus Rex, one of the fiercest creatures that's ever lived. As they're preparing him, this is what they say to him. The doors will close. You will go back in time. The doors will open, and you will see floating in front of you a path, a metallic path. And that is the only place you are allowed to step. You may not step off the path, because if you step off the path and your foot comes into contact with this pristine prehistoric environment, you would have no way of knowing how that single footprint might affect the future when you're dealing with millions and millions of years. So the man says, fine, I understand. They get in the machine. The door is closed. They go back in time. The door is open. He sees the path. He grabs the gun. He takes a step, and suddenly he hears a huge roar. 
He looks up, and there is the Tyrannosaurus Rex. It is so fearsome, he is not prepared for what he sees, he drops the gun, and he staggers off the path to try to get away. The Time Safari guys grab him. They pull him back into the machine. The doors close. They head back toward the future, and they are just murderously whispering to him, saying, you had better pray that nothing happened back there. They arrive in the present time, the doors open, and they see everything in the world has changed. Even the air smells different. They look down, and they see under the shoe of the businessman a single crushed butterfly. What the author, Ray Bradbury, is saying is that one second of time when he stepped off the path was enough to, to completely change the future. I want us to focus this morning on that one second because time is affecting us right now in this very room. I'm giving a talk right now. My talk is going to be about half an hour long. I've already been speaking for 15 minutes. That means there's only half to go. You are all sitting somewhere in this room, and the moment that you are sitting there, you are the only person occupying that particular physical place in this particular moment of time. I'm giving this talk on September 28th, between the time of 10 and 11.30 in the morning. And when this particular half hour is done, it will never happen again. You are all sitting somewhere in this room. When it's done, you will stand up, you will go on to live your lives, and every single second that we experience is unique. And when I look at it that way, I realize it is no surprise to me, time is easily the most expensive thing that exists in the world. Because what is time but these seconds that are passing by as I say these words? There is evidence of this again and again throughout Scripture. It's almost like God is crying out from these pages, basically saying, Christian, recognize the value of your time. Again and again throughout history, we see examples of people who grew up in a moment where they suddenly found themselves shocked into doing something that only they could do at that particular moment to affect the circumstances that were around them. Such was the case with the Danish physicist Niels Bohr. This man was a genius. People would come from other countries just to hear him talk. He was so famous that another country within Europe invited him to leave his country, come to this other country, and do things with nuclear physics that would change the world. When Niels Bohr heard this invitation, he immediately said no. The invitation came from Nazi Germany. Instead, he began using all of his energy to get German scientists out of Germany to the safety of England. Two German scientists had made their way out of Germany. They were all the way in Denmark. Unfortunately, they were Nobel Prize winners, and they had brought their Nobel Prizes with them. This was a time in European history when you were not allowed to bring valuable things across the border because if you got caught, they would be confiscated, you would be put in jail. Niels Bohr knew this. So he took these two awards and he dropped them into two jars of acid where the gold dissolved. He then took these two jars and put them up on a shelf filled with hundreds of other jars exactly the same kind. And over the course of the next several years of the war, those two jars just sat there because nobody knew what was in them. At the end of the war, Niels Bohr took the jars down Using his knowledge, he brought the gold back out of the acid. He gave the gold back to the Nobel Society, and they recast the awards for these two guys. That's how Niels Bohr used some of his time, and for some reason, we're remembering him right now. In the Second World War, there was an American soldier putting some of his kit in, in order, and suddenly, unfortunately, he dropped a hand grenade, and the pin came out of it. Then something very strange happened. He didn't run away. 
He didn't try to dive behind a rock. He jumped onto the grenade. Why did he do that? He did it because he wasn't out in a field somewhere. He was in a cave surrounded by his best friends, and he didn't want them to die. He died from the explosion, and later in his memory, his comrades gave him the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest award a soldier can get. You get it for saving lives. That soldier used the last second of his life to do that, and for some reason, we're remembering him right now. You can look back through history and you can see these events of people who recognized the value of their time and could not let the moments go by without using them in the best possible way. Let me give you one more example. This one's from the Bible. I'm going to read a very short, very familiar passage. If you want to read along, you can, but if you don't want to, it'll be on the screen behind me. You can read along or just listen. This is in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage! It is I! Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, when I was younger, I would always read this passage and I would think to myself, ah, Peter, too bad. If you only had a little bit more faith, you could have walked all the way to Jesus. Not that long ago, I reread this, and I saw something so bizarre, so fascinating. I cannot believe I had never noticed it before. But to understand it, we have to understand how we in the 21st century experience entertainment. There was an invention in the first half of the 20th century that changed the world. It was the roller coaster. This was the first time in human history when enough people were making money to be able to spend a little bit of money on something as frivolous as entertainment. Mass entertainment. And that is exactly what the roller coaster provides. Everybody who gets on the roller coaster experiences the same thing. They feel like they are in danger, but they are actually completely safe. In other words, the roller coaster is a packaged, repeatable, emotional experience and it has changed your lives. Today, when you go to a movie theater to see a movie, you see astonishing things. Huge explosions, wonderful special effects. And when you are impressed by them, you say, that was amazing. And I know they used a computer to do that. 30, 35 years ago, if you went to the movies and saw an amazing special effect, you would not have thought they used a computer to do that. You would have asked yourself, how did they do that? That's just 30, 35 years. What was it like to see a motion picture 100 years ago when motion pictures were brand new? Historians said the very first people who ever saw a moving picture were so surprised, so shocked by what they saw in front of them, they actually had to remind themselves what they were seeing wasn't really happening. Now, we're just talking about 100 years. What was life like 2,000 years ago when the disciples were alive? 
No roller coasters. No movies. In a very real sense, not even an idea of, of a book like we have today. Hardly an example of a packaged, repeatable, emotional experience at all. And nonetheless, 2,000 years ago, the disciples see a man standing on water. I am amazed they could still stand. I'm amazed they didn't lose control of their senses. Many times we know if someone experiences something outside of their realm of capability, their senses simply cannot take it in. And here, they see him standing there, and their first reaction is they believe it's a ghost. They believe it's terrifying. But the moment the disciples see it's not a ghost, the moment Peter sees it's not a ghost, the moment Peter sees it's Jesus, his reaction is, Lord, I want to do that. Isn't that bizarre? A human being cannot walk on the water. Peter knows this. He sees Jesus standing there, and he says, let me try that too. And the, the incredible thing is, maybe if I had been there with the disciples, maybe if I had seen Jesus doing the things that he had done, maybe if I had seen him standing there on the water looking at me probably with love in his eyes, maybe I would have had the courage to step out of that boat. What's worth remembering here is perhaps not that Peter started to sink. Maybe it's worth remembering he took a few steps before he started to sink. Whether we believe it or not, that is the experience God wants to give us every single day of our lives. He wants us to experience things that we think to ourselves, there is no way that I should be able to be doing this. That's, he talked about it all the time. He said, I came to give you life, to give you abundant life. That would be an abundant kind of life. That's the kind of life he wants us to be living. If we know someone who's not living a life like that, if we are not living a life like that, there can be only one reason why, and it's because we're bored. There are so many people who are just bored with their lives. They wake up in the morning. They live their life. They lay down at night. They say sometimes, I'm just ready for the whole thing to be over. That is not God's plan. If you or someone you know is experiencing those kinds of questions, there's only one thing you can do. Don't be bored. Don't allow yourself to be distracted from the lifetime of precious time that only God has given to you. No one else can spend it except you. It belongs to you and no one else. If there was a spider web next to me right here, and there was a spider laying on it, if I took my finger, I touched the web anywhere, the spider would immediately turn in the direction of my finger because the spider believes it may be an insect, something it's very interested in. But you know what would happen if I touched the web again? Nothing. Because the spider can already tell the difference between my touch and the movement of an insect, and it will not let itself be distracted from what it really cares about. God has given us a lifetime of priceless seconds and minutes and weeks. He is essentially begging us, saying, I can use that in ways you can't possibly imagine. Lord, I want to thank you this morning 
for the fact that you have made it clear how we can have a relationship with you. We know, Lord, if we want to have a relationship with you, our time could not be spent in a better way. We know what it means, Lord, to come into friendship with you. It simply means knowing that God is there. It means knowing that we're not perfect. We are not God ourselves. We cannot reach a perfect God on our own. It means knowing that Jesus died a perfect sacrifice for us. And if we want this friendship with God, all we have to do is say, Lord, I believe in you. I believe you took this sacrifice for me. Thank you, Lord, that we know that. And thank you, Lord, that at this moment, somebody could begin that relationship with you just by confessing that silently in their heart. It could happen right now. Thank you, Lord, for the time that you've given us. Thank you that you want to use it in ways that we can't even imagine. Thank you that it's exciting and frightening and very exciting at the same time. We pray all these things to you, Lord. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. In your name, amen.